Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans. I'll give it a rest. You're under new management. It's Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast now. Hi, welcome from uh, Pete and Gary to our latest podcast, which is Attack on the Dardanelles, 18th of March, 1915. And uh, let's have a look at a, a quick look at the background. What what's going on here, Gary? Well, on the thirty first of October, Turkey declared war uh, on the Entente, which was uh, reciprocated by Britain on the fifth of November. Uh, however, oh, oh. <laughs> however, here yeah, on the third of November, so two days before war was declared, Churchill ordered the blockading squadron to bombard the entrance to the Dardanelles, and it must be said with some success at both the Sedil Bar and Kumkale Forts, Gave which are either side of the straits, aren't they? I mean, the Sedil Bar... Uh... The, the magazine blew up, which killed about 90 people and uh, gave a, a, an over-exaggerated uh, idea of how much damage the naval guns could cause on a fort, that, which so isn't a good thing in some ways. Uh, it was, was it a war crime? Well, the, <clears throat> the Turks had attacked the Russians. That's how they declared war, if you see what I mean. So it's um, it's not good, but it's one of those things, I suppose. Um, now we're not going to track through the, the drift to war. Uh, there was a, a that, why was the blockading fleet there then, Gary? What, what, why was there a fleet outside the Dardanelles, Gary? Well, because the uh, the Germans had uh, transferred, I think is how it was described, the uh, the Gerb and, and the Breslau to uh, to their uh, their friends, the Turks. So we were blockading, making sure they didn't come out. There was a real threat, yeah. So we've got a mixture of, uh, of, of French and British ships outside, mainly pre-dreadnoughts. I think we'll pop back to pre-dreadnoughts later, what they are and why they're important. But that's what was out there, and, 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 it, and the blockade was, was there. Now, the situation developed. From then on, the Turks start to improve the defences. I think it's important because we've shown them that we might have an interest in that area. Um, and it, it all starts to move faster in January when the, war ca- the Royal Navy is ordered by the War Cabinet to... Invade and take the Gallipoli Peninsula with Constantinople as its objective. Now, what what's the first thing into your mind when you hear that, Gary? Well, how wonderful your speaking voice is. It is lovely, isn't it? It is, yeah. 
The other thing that comes to mind is how can ships take and hold an area of ground that's not an island, if you see what I mean? I do. Yeah. I do. I do. It's connected to other bits of land. The, the other thing is that the, the, they say this, but that even as they're saying it, there's people saying, well, we better send some troops. And they'd already sent two battalions of Royal Marine Light Infantry. They've been sent out by the Admiralty to Lemnos. Now, these were to... When, when we'd smashed up the Turkish batteries, they were to occupy them and to demolish the remnants, so to speak, uh, in the Dardanelles. And the, the other thing is Kitchener started to promise troops if they're needed in the later stages of, of the operations. And that's a bit of a Pandora's box, isn't it? Why do you think it's, well, why do you think it's a Pandora's box, Gary? Well, if troops are available later, why, why not send them now? Because if you send them later, it might be too late. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and Admiral Sir Henry Jackson, he's sort of, he's a, a high up uh, on the chief, uh, in the staff of the Admiralty. He's, he sums up the, the view uh, and he says this, the naval, the naval bombardment is not recommended as a sound operation unless a sound, a strong, strong military operation. I've forgotten how to read. I'll read this. The naval bombardment <laughs> is not recommended as a sound operation unless a strong military force is ready to assist it, or at least to follow it up immediately the forts are silenced. I can't read. What's gone wrong with me? Anyway... Once, the, once they've slipped, they, they slip more and more. And they keep adding things to this sort of notational force. So the Royal Naval Division is sent out, the whole of it uh, is sent out in February. That was raised by uh, Churchill from amongst the Royal Navy Reservists. But they are, uh, in essence, soldiers. Uh, then there's the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps. They're, they're in Egypt training and they're made available. The French promised one or two divisions for any land on they're keeping an eye on the British they're keeping an eye on the British what are those British up to and then the 29th division is added taken away added taken away it's a bit of a weather vein as to Kitchener's views on whether because the, the, yeah, really they should be all on the western front uh, so the idea of it as a single service operation is rather compromised before it started they've already sent loads of troops now um, Churchill's asked for a plan and the, uh, the, the, the Admiral Carden, who's in charge uh, of the Eastern Mediterranean Squadron, uh, he's come up with a methodical plan, which is basically, and you'll recognise this as a, a brilliant plan, Gary, they would shell the outer forts, that, then they'd shell the interim, medium, the middle forts, and then they'd move forward. Uh, and basically, it's a list of things to do, not a plan. Yeah, that, that's my view. Uh, and, and they start with this methodical approach on the 19th of February, 1915. Um, there's a problem that becomes apparent immediately. Uh, uh, that, that first bombardment had flattered to deceive. We mentioned this. What's the problem with, uh, with, with the, for the Royal Navy and the French Navy? Well, how often do any Navy, never mind the Royal Navy, practice firing at targets long range on land as opposed to other ships? Um, and also you've got an ammunition question here. They're, they've got, you know, a finite amount of ammunition to, to actually achieve the objective. So they were only using one gun at a time uh, to, to, to save ammunition. And where to gun barrels? That's another finite resource. Gun barrels can only fire so many rounds. It's all, it's all finite. Uh, they have dreadful problems hitting their targets. Uh, the results are almost minimal. They, they do damage, but 
what seems what the what it, it's the, it sets the pattern and the pattern is everything goes quiet you think ah ha, ha, we've got them <laughs> and then there's a bit of a pause but the moment there's any danger to the turks they burst back into life uh, they come back from the dead like lazarus and resume fire um and so, well, we've uh, been to the forts, haven't we? And we've seen that there are actually some very large, safe underground areas in these forts. So presumably the Turks were just, you know, relatively safe uh, and coming out when uh, when the firing stopped. Yeah, you'd have to actually hit a gun or detonate an ammunition uh, 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 depot uh, to, 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 to do any real damage. And, and uh, have a guess at the percentage of shells that hit. I suppose you can't really. What are you basing Well, on? I'm going to have a guess at, say, because I'm assuming it's very low, otherwise you wouldn't have asked me. So I'm going to say 2 to 3%. That's exactly right. And just as written in the notes. It is. <laughs> I'm just proving I read the notes, Pete. We do have some brief notes, which uh, perhaps we ought to pay more attention to at times. <laughs> They're so invaluable. Uh that that's at twelve thousand yards, two to three percent. So that's an awful lot. That's sort of ninety eight, ninety seven percent. Well, the target's it. also quite small at twelve thousand yards. It is. I mean, how many miles is that? Uh, well, it's seven or eight miles, isn't it? I could mm. barely see it. Uh, well, I couldn't see it. The Turks are mainly underground or behind earthworks, and earthworks aren't much affected by naval shells, are they? they, they it, it's all, uh, and the, then there's the weather, because February, the weather isn't great out in the Dardanelles. And the next real attack, they resume, they're, they're, there's a, a pause in operations, and then they resume on the 25th of, of February. The forts burst back into life as if nothing had happened. Uh, 26th of February, they start to edge into the straits themselves, uh, firing at the entrance forts and then engaging the intermediate forts. That's uh, forts like Dardanelles and Masudia. Um, and and they, 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 then they come up with another plan. Now, what is the other plan? They, they do something different. What What's that? Well, they decide they can actually land some impromptu parties to uh, complete the destruction of the forts and uh, any abandoned gun batteries at Kumkali and Sadil Bar. Now, <laughs> this this acts as a as a tutor. It takes the Turks through practice landings. I said poke poke pokey. <laughs> yeah, and with each landing. The resistance gets stiffer. I wonder why that might be. Well, I always compare it to in a, in a two blokes talking in a pub, and one bloke prods the other one, and uh, you might get away with it the first time. Prod him again, you might just about get away with it the second time. Third time, you'll get your finger broken and probably punched. And it's a bit like that, isn't it? You're saying to the Turks, "This is this is what we're doing." What do you think? <laughs> in North London, it'd be on the first poke. Oh. Uh, well, I'm not sure. I've always found North Londoners to be a... a yeah, your part of North London. Oh, yeah, posh part. Sorry, <laughs> yes. <laughs> East Finchley. Ah, home of the Boy Scouts. <laughs> Blue bottle. All right. Um, now, so... Um, now, now, Carden... The trouble with Admiral Carden is he's cautious. He never deploys more than three of his pre-dreadnoughts at a time. And, and that reduces... <laughs> You're not going to get a crushing bombardment if you're only firing one of two uh, in salvos of one out of each turret at a time. You've only got three dreadnoughts in. Uh, it's, you're not going to get a crushing bombardment. Now, let's talk about these dreadnoughts. Are these pre-dreadnoughts, the pre-dreadnoughts, are they efficient weapons of war, do you think? 
Yes, I mean, they, they are outclassed by the dreadnought. That, there's no doubt about that. Uh, they were described as becoming obsolete. But they're obsolete in terms of naval battle. They're not obsolete in terms of their effectiveness, for example, in other areas. And they weren't old. You know, they no. were six or seven years old in some cases. The, the battle cruisers were six, seven. The, 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 the Invincible, uh, or is it the Indefatigable? I, I always get them mixed up. Why do they call them similar names? Indefatigable. Um, and, yeah, and, and uh, the, the Lord Nelson, the Agamemnon, they're, uh, they're, 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 they're relatively new shops, ships. Now they'd be called new, wouldn't they? I mean, we, we still have ships at 30 years, 40 years old. Serving yeah, them. and there were problems with them. We discussed this in the Jutland um, podcast, for example. Their armour, uh, because speed would be their armour. So there were the issues. Cruises, yeah, 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 there were issues, but, but they were not obsolete other than in terms of the the naval classes and the pre-dreadnoughts were not obsolete unless they met a dreadnought and the only dreadnought of any sort was the garbon which was a battle cruiser uh, that would have been difficult now they sent out almost as if they were thinking of the queen elizabeth now that's a super dreadnought with 15 inch guns and uh, that's big gary 15 inch mm. guns um they would <laughs> I love it. She was going to calibrate her guns by firing at the Turks. <laughs> she wasn't allowed to go into the straits, right into the straits, though. Uh, now, they tried to use those 15-inch guns to fire right over the peninsula. That gives you an idea of the power, doesn't it? It could fire right over the peninsula. But what do you think made it ineffective? Why would gunnery fire over the Gallipoli Peninsula be ineffective, do you think? Well, what are you firing at? So, you know, unless you know what the targets are. So I'm assuming they were reliant on um, uh, air cover to, to provide that. And um, I don't think they had it, did they? Well, point? they had some, but they couldn't get high enough. <laughs> they were seaplanes. They were rubbish. They were useless. And they, they had to fly to so low that the people on the ground could shoot at them. So they were effectively firing at nothing. Yeah, and, and they hit nothing, basically. Um, now... Uh, it, it, it's also that the Turks are also building up their defences. And there's another threat that becomes apparent. And this, this is, uh, you're going to tell us about this. You're going to be midshipman, so a young, lovely young lad. Uh, Herbert Williams, and you're aboard HMS Agamemnon, which is one of the, um, the newer pre-dreadnoughts. If you, that's what the last two, her and the Lord Nelson, were the last two, really. So tell us what he says. What's the other problem they've got? We were being fired on by concealed howitzers. They are beastly things to deal with, as they fire from behind a hill, and all you know about them is that shells are falling all around. You can't even tell them what uh, tell from what direction they come from, and so it's impossible to hit back. When these batteries are located by aeroplanes, they move. Luckily, they are not big guns, but this high-angle fire is very objectionable as the projectiles come pretty nearly straight down onto a ship's deck and side armour is no good. Now, they couldn't sink a pre-dreadnought. They could do superficial damage. Uh, I mean, four, five, six-inch shells going to do some bloody damage. Uh, but there's something else. Um, what were we using as minesweepers? And remember, we, ha we have to sweep the mines out of the strait. Well, what were we using uh, for minesweepers, Gary? Well, we'd, <laughs> we'd use converted fishing trawlers. And what do you think would happen if a four, five, six-inch shell hit that? That would do quite a lot of damage, frankly. Probably sink it. It would. It would. Now, uh, the, um, the, 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 the minesweepers, uh, 
they uh, they're, they're, they're trying to work in the straits. They've got the, the Turks have lines of mines which have laid. Um, and what what problems do they have? Well, one is there's a there's a there's a there's a current running through the Dardanelles. Uh, yes. four, four to a three to four knot current pouring out of there, which is quite a lot when you only go at six knots in your trawler, which means you're effectively almost standing still at times in the world. And the further you get up, you wanted to make this point, the further you get towards Chenac. Yeah, Chenac is actually the, the highest point. It's four knots at Chenac. So the further you go, the harder it gets. Now, I expect these trawlers, they were manned by some of the bravest and best. <laughs> well, they, they are they're civilians, basically. Um, hostilities only they'd, they'd signed up for the hostilities um, and as you can probably gather they were probably quite nervous well I'd be bloody nervous wouldn't you <laughs> sat yeah. almost still with, with, with howitzers and guns and all sorts firing at me and even when they put a, a regular naval volunteer regular naval a few you know petty officers and things aboard it meant it didn't. It didn't help. The the Turks have got searchlights at night. The currents, the wind, everything. It's all. It's it's a very hit or miss affair. They've got to drag a heavy sort of underwater kite, which which two kites, and then there's a sweep wire, and it, it cuts the the cables of the mines, and then they would be sunk when they floated to the surface by rifle fire. Imagine the precision required for that. So it's 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 difficult. Um, all in all, are you not becoming aware now that the Turks have managed to create a sort of integrated defence system? So, so let's go through the parts. What are the first the parts? Now, there's one obvious part. What's that? Well, it's the big guns in the forts. So these are um, the 10, 10 in, 9 to 10 inch guns in the forts, the big bangy things. We've seen a couple of them. Uh, yeah. and, uh, they're going to keep the pre-dreadnoughts uh, pre at a longer range than they would have liked. Because they could. Save yes. them uh, if they were lucky. Uh, now, what else have they got? Well, you, you, we mentioned it: minefield batteries and mobile howitzers. Uh, they're to deal with. Really, they're that they, they damage the superstructure of the pre-dreadnoughts. But what they really do is sink tr sink uh, minesweepers or trawlers. They're not bloody minesweepers, really, except in name. Um, uh, what else is that? So, so, so the, the obvious thing then, the other obvious part. What's that, Gary? Well, the obvious thing is the minefields themselves. Um, if, if it's not properly swept, it's going to be total carnage uh, because you can't rush the slow-firing forts. You can't get near them. Uh, but you also had some torpedo tubes that aimed across the narrows, which threatened a further layer of disaster. So although the potential threat was far greater than the reality, but it's the That's minefields true, yeah. that are the real issue. So you can't ru you could rush the, the forts... But you can't rush a minefield. You'll, 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 they've, they've done tests and loads of them would be sunk. Well, one big test is coming up. <laughs> yeah. And there's one last thing, and that's the Goeben herself and the Breslau and, and the rest of the Turkish fleet. They could be lurking uh, behind the Nagara point, which is a big right-hand turn, which would be very threatening. Yeah, uh, we shouldn't underestimate the, the Goeben. It was transferred to the Ottoman Empire on the 16th of August 1914, and it was then known as the uh, the Yavuz Sultan Selim, but the Yavuz for short, I think. Um, and it's, I mean, let's think about this ship. This is this is a modern ship. It wasn't scrapped until 1973. Um, and, and it's a powerful, 
powerful ship. Well, it's more powerful <coughs> than any of the British ships, probably, except the Queen well, Elizabeth. It was, it was certainly a match for the battlecruisers. Yeah, and it's certainly better armoured and uh, uh, significantly bigger, I think, as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a good ship. Now, um, so... They're not making much progress. They can't get at the minefields. They can't get through. They, they, they're not knocking the forts out. And uh, they're under pressure from Churchill. And uh, there's, a, there's a meeting held. Uh, Carden's second in command, Rear Admiral John de Roebuck, he chairs a meeting of the Eastern Mediterranean Squadron to discuss the idea of a rush through the Dardanelles. Now, that's rejected. It's specifically rejected by Carden right back in January. But they're all thinking about it. And one of those who was there is a chap called Commander Worsley Gibson of HMS Albion. What, what, what have you got to say, uh, Gibson? It would be madness to try and rush them. The narrows are sure to be mined. It has been proved that bombardment silences forts, but does little material damage to guns and only silences because gunners take cover. Personally, I feel sure that it is pressure from our cursed politicians on the Vice Admiral which is making him even consider such a thing. A large army, 60 or 70,000, is collecting for the purpose of cooperation, the only way to tackle this job, and why not wait for them? Now, so the the next day they have a second meeting, not not to discuss a rush, but but to discuss a concentrated attack, uh, moving together all the phases into one operation. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's, this would deal with not only the minefield, but the intermediate defences. Uh, and, and, and the idea was to knock out the defences so the minefields, uh, sorry, the, the forts, so the minefields could be swept properly. Uh, Carden forwards this to the Admiralty, and Churchill agrees to it, but, and I think it is classic Churchill, <clears throat> he says he, should, he shouldn't risk losing any successes by attempting to rush the narrows too fast. Successes? Yeah, that's right. Um, but also just the idea of make sure you don't lose any ships. Yeah. <laughs> Typical. Uh, the result of all this pressure is uh, Carden wasn't a well man. 16th of March, he, he has to go on the sick list. He's replaced by uh, Vice Admiral John de Roebuck. <clears throat> Together, they've all come, uh, they've come up with a plan for the 18th of March attack, which we're dealing with. And it divides the Allied fleet into three lines of ships. And here we'll, we'll look at who, who's who. And what these ships are. Let's go through it. Most modern ships are in line A. That's the Queen Elizabeth, Super Dreadnought 15-inch guns. The Agamemnon, Lord Nelson. They are the most modern pre-dreadnoughts. The Inflexible, that's the Battlecruiser, not the Indefatigable, as I wrongly said. The Prince George and the Triumph, they're older pre-dreadnoughts. They would guard the flank. Now, now these would sail up the strait and open fire at the forts on either side of the Narrows. That's the intermediate forts. Now, the next, the next line, B. Now, that's made up of French ships. The Suff and these are pre-dreadnoughts, and some of them are a bit old and grotty. Suffren, Bouvet, Galois, and Charmaine. They would pass through the British line and press forwards to reduce the range as close as uh, 8,000 yards. Line C. Uh, you may note that that's the most dangerous and difficult task. Yes. Line C is made up of older pre-dreadnoughts of British. They're Ocean, Irresistible, Albion, Vengeance, Swiftsure and Majestic. And these are going to act as reliefs. They'll replace damaged ships and allow the attack to be pressed home. So if a ship's damaged and falls out of line, they'll replace them. 
Mines, after a couple of hours, they'd start minesweeping once the Turkish fire had been suppressed. And then the fleet would close the range still closer. And then, and then they would withdraw overnight, complete the destruction of the forts on 19th of March, and then finally force the straits. <laughs> and, oh. and then, as Matt always says, and then, uh, then uh, uh, tea, and beer, tea, tea and crumpets for, uh, for lunch and everybody happy ever after. Now, this, uh, this, this, this plan may or may not have worked, but the Turks had done something. What have the Turks done, Gary? They cheated, hadn't they? Yeah, about 10 days earlier, on the 8th of March, the Turkish mine layer, the Nusret, had successfully laid a line of 20 mines parallel to the shore, so not across the width of the narrows, uh, of Erinkai Bay. Uh, yeah. And they'd done that because they'd observed the British battleships manoeuvring there on the previous day. Ah. <laughs> now, that single line of mines was to prove fatal to the, the whole Allied plan. Now, 18th of March, 1915, 10.30, the Allied fleet passes into the Straits. Now, you know I've got a thing about this. And with one of the hotels we stay in on our visits to, with uh, Peter Hart Battlefield Tours, just threw that in, uh, <laughs> uh, or, or in fact, uh, uh, Matt McLaughlin Battlefield Tours, because he actually stays uh, in a hotel just by the Erin Creeper. You can look out and you can, as you're having your breakfast, you can imagine it. Remember sitting in yeah. that hotel on the, in the balcony looking out? fantastic yeah. uh, it must have been an amazing sight all these ships moving in um and as i said they're obsolescent ships what about about no matter how obsolescent what is there about a ship that is never obsolescent what is it what's important well, well the men for one thing that's it so on these old battleships even an old one like say the bouvet it's got 700 men nearly on it. Now, those 700 men are not obsolescent. So whatever you're talking about, this is a risk. It's a risky operation, not just to pre-dreadnought ships that don't matter much, but to a large and important resource of men. Yeah, but let's not, let's, let's not forget, these were the pride of the Navy just 10 years previously. That's right. Well, let's look at the, for instance, the Lord Nelson, the Agamemnon. That, what, do you know what guns they had? Four 12-inch, they're big bangy things, 10 9.2-inch, and 24 12-pounder guns. Now, let's look at the, the uh, midshipman. I hope you're going to do this in a blue bottle voice. He, he's finished his favourite own. Uh, you can do blue bottle. Midshipman Alfred Langley is on HMS Lord N Nelson. And what does he say? I'm too young. I don't know blue bottle. The turret that is visible above the deck may be compared with the head of a giant mushroom. <laughs> Suspended from the floor of the turret, a long circular trunk, the mushroom stalk reaches down to the bottom of the ship into the shell rooms and magazines. Lifts travelling up and down the trunk supply ammunition to the guns. The whole of the turret trunk structure, weighing hundreds of tonnes, rests and rotates on a ring of enormous steel rollers carried by the ship. So this is a this is a serious uh, weapon of war. And the Lord Nelson, this is a nine point two. The twelve inch guns are, I would imagine, about three inches bigger. Uh, <laughs> and uh, this is an important weapon. It, 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 just eight year, five or six years ago, ten years ago, it had been. Uh, the wonder of the age. Now, Langley goes on to explain what happens inside a turret. Take, take me through it, Gary. Load with the night shell. In a moment, the whole gun's crew were again alert and active. 
whilst the deafening clatter recommenced only to die away again within half a minute when the guns were loaded. All guns to the ready! Now everyone was tense and silent. It was not difficult to imagine lying ready to leap into cataclysmic activity, the huge charge of cordite concealed in the chamber of the gun. Unconsciously, one noted that the breach was properly closed, that all men were clear in the rear where the gun would leap in recoil. One wondered if everything was sound. A merely microscopic fault in the great steel barrel might have caused a calamity. (laughs) The seconds dragged on. Still, the sowing from the hydraulic valves and the electrical buzzing were the only sounds inside the turret. The waves breaking against the side of the ship could be plainly heard. Suddenly, two rings on the fire gong. Stand by! One ring. Fire! And with a... The gun would leap back into the turret and start slowly to run out. The air in the gun house suddenly compressed, then released by the great mass of the gun, was rent at the same time by the noise of the explosion. Before the reverberations had died away, the gun's crew, with febrile activity, were reloading. I'm not sure about that, that last word. <laughs> now, uh, it's a noisy, complicated business. We've got another perspective. This is Private William Jones, and he's inside a six-inch gun turret on the, uh, on the Prince George. Uh, it's not a nice place to be, Gary. It really isn't. I mean, we would not enjoy it. And this is what he says. There were... A- uh, what accent? No, mine. There were eight of the crew, and two by the ammunition hoist. We were in that casement. Casemate. <laughs> 11 hours. It was about 14 feet wide and 12 feet deep. Inside, it was very hot. Some of us were very scantily dressed. I was wearing a bathing costume and a pair of heavy boots in case a projectile dropped on your toe. The old fellow, a corporal in the Marines with a very heavy moustache, poor old chap, we gave him the lightest job there was there. But out he went. He was right out. He means he's fainted. The gun layer sergeant said, Leave the old bastard alone. And we carried on. When we loaded the gun, it was quite a big job because the shell was about 112 pounds. You open the bre- up the breech of the gun, pulling the breech back. Up comes the number four. He gets a shell on top of the shell guard, gets a rammer and rams home. And number six comes along with a cylinder and enters the tube, pushes it right home. And number two closes the breech. Ready! Immediately you stand clear from the gun and it's fired by the number one, the gun layer. Then open the breech again. Get the instruct- extractor on your arm. That fits round the back of the cartridge and you fling it aside. Oh, I can assure you you it's red hot then the whole procedure is gone through again so that this gives you an idea two different sized turrets it, it's hard work in there now the british line a is advancing into the turret so we remember what that is that's the agamemnon the lord nelson queen elizabeth uh, and the inflexible with a couple of pre-dreadnoughts on either side and they're getting a lot of harassing fire from the from the howitzers uh, and, uh, and and also of course fire from the main forts uh, this would slacken every so often, and they'd think, ah, we've done it, ha, we've conquered it, on to Constantinople and victory, and then it would start again. Uh, 12.06, de Roebuck decides it's time <laughs> to order the... I'm sorry, I have to laugh. It's time to order the French Line B under Rear Admiral Emile Gerprate to pass through at closer range. Um uh, the, uh, the, there's two of them, the Gaulois and the Charlemagne. They move up the left-hand side, the European side, while uh, the Suffren 
and the, remember this name, Bouvet, they move up on the Asiatic side. Where's, what, what's the name of that bay? Erin Quay Bay, near there. So, the French ships are pressing through the British line, and of course the Turkish forts open up with a tremendous fire as they close to about 9,000 yards. And the sufferance hit by a, a heavy shell that penetrates a magazine. And you're going to be, who are you going to be? I want to hear you pronounce it. Rear Admiral Emile Guaprat of the Souffron. You're on good form today, all old. He says, and I'm not going to do any accents. No, this here. isn't funny, it's is serious. it? He says, a casement and a turret were knocked out of action and all of their crew killed and incinerated. Desiring to salute our brave men, I went straight down. The scene was tragically macabre. The image of desolation, the flames spared nothing. As for our young men, a few minutes ago, so alert, so self-confident, all now lying dead on the bare deck, blackened, burnt skeletons, twisted in all directions, no trace of any clothing, the fire having devoured all. Now, the magazine had been penetrated. There was a real risk of a huge, huge explosion. And, and Grappretti goes on to say this. In these circumstances, time was running out for our ships. It was going without doubt to explode with all hands. If a young gunnery officer named Francois Lanozel, acting with initiative beyond praise, hadn't saved the ship by hurriedly ordering the flooding of the magazines. He ran through the smoke to Commander Petit Thouaz, saying, I hope I haven't overreached myself, but seeing that the Suffren was in grave danger of explosion, I've just flooded the magazine without orders. Oh, I think he probably got away with that one, don't he? Yeah. <laughs> just saved the ship. Uh, he was a hero of the hour, of course. Uh, um, now, the British, they're watching, and they are... They, they can see what's happening. The French are getting pounded. They really are getting hit by a lot of shells. And this is able seaman Daniel Sem, who's aboard the HMS Prince George. He says this. I say, hats off to the Frenchmen. Two of their cruisers now passed up the lines and took up a position. By cruisers, he means battleships, but, you know. Took up a position ahead of our ships over on the Asiatic side in, in a direct line with a Dardanus fort, close to Chinak. If anyone ever went into hell, these two French cruisers did. At times, it was impossible to see them for the spray that was flown, thrown up by the shells falling all round them. That fort was firing like hell. Um, and this duel goes on until about 1400. And then there's a, you know, people try and make a controversy out of it. The Bouvet, in rapid succession, was hit by either, either a heavy shell or more than one heavy shell. And it may or may not at the same time have run onto a mine. I think it ran onto a mine as well as the shells, but I don't know. And I don't think anyone else does too. Um, this was just as British ships in Line C were going to move up and relieve them. Now, uh, there's one of the Turks is watching this. This is Captain Ashir Ar- Arkayan, and he's watching. He's in charge of one of the Turkish gun batteries. What does what does Ashir say, uh, Gary? The Bouvet started to withdraw, but at that moment, a cloud of red and black smoke arose from under the ship, which may have struck a mine. Immediately after this, there was a much more violent explosion. We believed that a shell from Maji, uh, Mejidia, I can't say that. That's a good effort, mate. Mejidia had blown up the magazine. The ship heeled over at once and her crew poured into the sea. 
Now, this is a, a naval catastrophe, this is. Uh, from Prince George, uh, Regimental Sergeant Major David Hepburn. He's Royal Garrison Artillery, actually, but he's been attached to him, and he's running, manning, I think, a six-inch howitzer, which is answering the Turkish howitzer, and it's actually perched on top of a turret. And, and, and he saw this happen, and the description's quite chilling. He says this, We saw an immense cloud of black smoke ascending from the Frenchman's starboard quarter. Almost immediately she began to heel towards us, and gradually, steadily and gracefully she continued to heel till her masts lay on the water. A second or two in that position, then just as steadily she continued to heel over till she lay keel uppermost. She was perhaps half a minute in that position, then quickly slid under the water. From the time we saw the smoke till she disappeared was barely three and a half minutes. No noise, nothing horrifying in the sight. Our imagination supplied the horror. And there are, we'll put the pictures up, there are a few smudgy photographs. Uh, and they don't convey a horror at all, really. They just look like a ship in trouble. The water floods through. She's obviously, whatever, has had the bottom ripped out of her. But we have an account of someone who's on board her. And this is Seaman Sabor Peiro. And uh, you're going you're gonna to be him and say, say exactly what happens to you. It's, a, it's a, a, a thrilling and horrible story. The boat immediately listed to starboard. I was completely covered in the coal dust which came from the bunkers. I went to the signal ladder and with the second mate we climbed up. From the bridge, I got myself onto the funnel, which was entering the water. Then I climbed onto the hull. I believe that the second mate was trapped, and he fell into a hatchway. From the keel, I threw myself into the water. Now, it's Actually, lucky. Think it's... about that. From the keel. It's always a bad sign in any yeah. naval battle if your keel's on view. <laughs> Things aren't going well for you. Anyway, uh, can you swim? Can you swim, Gary? Can you swim? Yeah, luckily he's a good swimmer. But he's, you know, he's still a bit touch and go whether he's going to survive this. But like he does, that. and he goes on to say, I couldn't rise to the surface because of the tug of the water. I was in the water for some time. Then when the bottom of the ship touched the bottom of the sea, I came straight up, either because the ship touched bottom or the boilers exploded. I couldn't breathe. Blood was coming out of my mouth and ears. When I was on the surface again, if I hadn't found this piece of wood, I would have been a goner. I managed to get one of the hammocks and got it between my knees. I saw another chap crying out to me to save him and I told him to come closer to me so that he could be on one end of the plank and me on the other. But when the English came to fish us out of the water, I saw that both his legs had been cut off. He died three days later. Now, the English, one of the main rescue boats was the picket boat from the Prince George. Uh, they picked up about 40 survivors. And this is able seaman Daniel Sem again of the Prince George. He says, our picket boat was there. All at once, these few survivors that were rescued sent up a cheer and sang their national anthem. The water all round where the ship had floundered was a mass of wreckage of all descriptions. There was a huge upheaval of water caused by air escaping from the sunken ship. These Frenchmen did not seem a bit downhearted over their ducking. They were all more or less joking and laughing, but I expect that they thought themselves lucky to escape with their lives. Servicemen... <laughs> it's not <Yeah>. me. <laughs> I got away from that one. But also... 
we always like we, we go on and on about how brave the British are in these circumstances. But of course, the French Navy has glorious traditions as well, and 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 these are brave men. And yeah, they've they've survived. and there is a memorial to the the loss of the Bouvet, isn't there? Uh, at the uh, the French memorial, and uh, it is actually really telling to see it just written there. Well, how many how many survived? Do you reckon? Well, there's only sixty six survived, so that means that six hundred and thirty eight lost their lives when something goes wrong at sea it goes wrong there's two things about it it goes wrong very quickly and it's fatal for almost everybody involved there's not many people with attractive wounds that they since you know have a in, in a sling they're either alive or dead for the most part um now uh, the, the 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 battle goes on there's the allied shells they're crashing down in the area of the fort notice i say in the area of the fort because they're difficult to hit um uh, and um they they, they 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 fire back when they need to. Uh, now I've, I've got another account from uh, this is from uh, Petty Officer George Morgan, HMS Irresistible. Now now where where are you? You're going to be here. Where are you situated? Uh, well, he's, he's deep. He's deep down inside a twelve-inch magazine on so the not, ocean. So not not in the turret. He's no, in the magazine he's, below he's it. Down. Yes, he's down deep inside the ocean the ship, the ocean, which is in line C. And he says, we soon began to pay our respects to the forts ashore, giving and taking as fast as we could send up ammunition. No thoughts of anything now but charges and shells. What the dickens was that, said one to me, as a monster shell must have struck the armoured belting. Oh, someone's false teeth have fallen in the shell room, <laughs> said another. It was like being in a huge tank with a party outside with different sized hammers belting away. Every now and then the ship would heel over, trembling, the thump of the propellers going now hard, now soft. The news came down that we were doing good work. Now, uh, so you're exchanging shells, you, 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 you don't know what's happening. This is one thing about naval warfare. Most people have not the slightest clue what's happening. Um, and this is Midshipman Langley. Uh, now, the Lord Nelson is hit by, by a shell. So, so what, what, what's your experience of that, Gary? In the middle of the afternoon, my own turret was directly struck by an enemy shell. Two sight setters were wounded and one of the 9.2-inch guns damaged. This did indeed give us a very exciting moment. To the din and fumes inside the turret were added the deafening crash of the shell bursting outside, the cries of the injured men, the pungent smell of the smoke drifting in through the gun ports. A minute later, when we cautiously opened the armoured hatch in the turret roof to evacuate the sight setters a volume of salt sorry, to evacuate the sight setters, a volume of salt water poured into the turret. A cry of She's sinking was quickly suppressed. But it was indeed an excusable cry from the wounded men who had been cooped up in a dim, armoured dungeon full to the brim with fumes and smoke, reverberating intolerably with the clang of machinery, the roaring of the guns, the bursting of shells and shuddering bodily like some huge wounded animal when struck by the enemy's fire. The deluge of water puzzled us considerably, but it was soon traced to a water pipe which had been severed by a fragment of the same shell that directly struck us. Now that was, uh, so there you were, midshipman Alfred Langley, that's what happened to him. Now, 
Meanwhile, uh, 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 the Robux ordered forward the, the, the uh, trawlers. They're to sweep ahead of the fleet, and they're having the usual problems because they haven't managed to suppress the howitzer fire, so they're in trouble. Uh, the Nosrat line of mines is not in Arinquibir, is not detected. Um, now, at 1611, more trouble. The battle crews are inflexible on the right of line A. Uh, they, she runs into a, a mine on her starboard bow and her captain, uh, and I'm going to be Captain Richard Fillimore. This is what uh, I remember of it as Fillimore. The electric light failed and most of the emergency oil lamps were extinguished. Men stationed in A magazine and shell room were thrown off their feet. The fore, tu- the fore turret was felt to lift bodily. All communications failed and orders to the engine room had to be conveyed by messenger. Speed of the ship was increased to 12 knots and the trim corrected by flooding the provision room. But the ship remained down by the bow six feet. And she limps away. And uh, it's one of my ambitions we, we, uh, to, to visit. She, 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 she runs herself aground on a small island off Tenedos, which one of our friends... Uh, uh, visited, uh, visited, and he said it's just the most fantastically uh, atmospheric thing. I think it's called Rabbit Island, but it, it's off Tenedos anyway. Um, now, just a, f- a couple of minutes later, so that's 1611, 1614, uh, the irresistible, a pre-dreadnought, that detonates a mine and begins to slowly settle down. Now, this is all luck, really, isn't it? You could sink in two minutes or you could sink in two hours. Uh, and it all depends on your, your casualties. Now, the Turks stop, open fire, bang, 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 bang. The, the big guns blazing away at her. And she begins to drift into Erin Quay Bay. And this is midshipman Owen Om, Om, Omni. God, Omni. Hey, I should have left that to you. Uh, and he's on the irresistible. What, what have you got to say? Well, this is Owen Omni. And he says, a great shock was felt which lifted the whole ship up. She at once listed to starboard, having been struck in the starboard engine room, which filled up very quickly, a warrant officer and three men being drowned. The bulkhead between the two engine rooms gave way, and she righted a bit. The order was given for everyone to come on deck. Now, this is what I mean. Because it didn't sink in two or three minutes, three or four minutes, um, the men can get out and get up on deck, and they're actually evacuated, most of them, by the destroyer Weir, HMS Weir. Um, and and by this time, de Roebuck begins to give in, throw in the towel. He first orders the leading ships to fall back. He thinks there's drifting mines. That's what he thinks. He doesn't know about the, the line of uh, uh, of mines in Erinquay Bay. He thinks there's a lot of floating mines coming down. Uh, and he, in 1750, he orders a general recall. It's a natural enough conclusion. If you think an area's been swept of mines, you presume they're floating, I suppose. I, I don't know. Now, the retreat begins. Um, now, the, the, then it de- degenerates into into farce because HMS Ocean attempts to take HMS Irresistible in tow and as part of that she's circling round it guess what happens Gary as she's circling round in the middle of the minefield does she hit a mine she does at 1805 and this is uh, we've got remember Petty Officer George Morgan he was right below decks and uh, he's way below the waterline he's in the magazines and uh, what happens if it? What would have happened to him if it had sunk in three minutes? You think? Yeah. What would have happened to everybody? Yeah. So you're going to. What does happen? Well, this is Petty Officer George Morgan. He says, "Bang!" 
The force of the blow picked me off the floor with the 85 pound half charge in my arms. We didn't need to ask what that was. The order came. Close magazines and shell rooms. The men all went up the trunk from the magazine. Before I could leave, it was my duty to see all ventilators and bunker plates fastened and watertight, doors shut, and voice pipes, p- voice pipes shut off in case they wanted to flood the magazine to avoid explosion. It only took a few minutes, but it seemed such a time to me. At last it was finished. There was only one way for me to escape, and that was through the shell room escape hatch. I only had a few minutes. I had to retrace my steps and undo and refasten all I had done. I hurried. Any moment, they may flood the magazine. As I opened the shell room door, I heard a faint hissing and a rumbling noise. It was dark now. The electric lights were smashed. It was the swishing water and lumps of coal rolling about in the bottom of the ship. Then the danger I was in dawned upon me. I had to think and act quickly. I crossed to the shell rack and scrambled up on the shells. Up I went and groped for the hatch. To my joy, it was opened. I was soon through and closed it behind me. My troubles were not over. Supposing the other hatch was closed. Anyone seeing it open in passing would close it. I lost no time but rushed towards it. Just as I reached the ladder, I heard someone raising the catch to let it down. I yelled and whoever it was didn't stop to argue. I was soon through. And this is with a ship sinking slowly. And he still only just makes it. There's a tension in that account. I thought you read that beautifully. It just conjures up the the suspense and tension. Was he going to make it? Is he going to make it? And he made it by a matter of seconds. If he just missed it, that hatch would have been down and he'd have been dead. And Uh, people wouldn't have waited for him. No. They They would have closed hatches. People closed hatches in the Navy to try and save a ship. What with people when it would drown you. Yeah. Oh, again, in actual fact, there weren't that many casualties. The, the, the shepherding destroyers to come round and rescue most of the clue, the crew, clue, crew. And she's finally abandoned. Uh, she sinks about oh, hours later. Half, half seven, she sinks. Uh, 1930. Now, the, the Allied ships are withdrawing, pulling back from the straits. And you can imagine all the crew, as they come out, the crews come up on deck and they begin to sort of take stock what's going on what's happened where is everybody what's going on where's the bouvet (laughs) things like that and they've got no idea what's going on and this is corporal fred brooks he was a royal marine uh, and he's on hms triumph he says everyone no i need uh, an accent for this ah he's from the north of england everyone crowded out up a deck to get a breath of fresh air by looking at a man's face you could tell if he'd been stationed below as ammunition supply or engine room or stokehold or, or, or those had been on guns the latter were full of fight whereas those had been below were white-faced and showed their nerve-wracking experience they, they hadn't had the excitement of fighting or the knowledge of what was going on. From 9am to 5pm, they'd heard nothing but the crash of shells striking our ship and the sound of our own guns firing. Rumour passed from one to other, often enlarged on the damage done by enemy fire. And this, I can't get through to you enough. People in ships don't know what's going on. He, he reckons the turret crew knew what was going on. They knew a bit more than... Um, than those down below. Now, uh, the, the question is, they've withdrawn. What to do next? Now, Roger Keyes, he's uh, de Roebuck's chief of staff, and he thought, what does he think the Turks are? A beaten okay. foe. 
he thinks. Sorry, I, I, I just read it's me, isn't it? It's you, yes. <laughs> <laughs> a beaten foe. I thought he was beaten at 2pm. I knew he was beaten at 4pm. And at midnight, I knew with still greater certainty that he was absolutely beaten. And it only remained for us to organise a proper sweeping force and devise some means of dealing with drifting minds to reap the fruits of our efforts. But there's an awful lot of dissenting voices to this view. In fact, he's about the only person who thinks that. I was going to say, that's incredibly optimistic. Well, I mean, we only had to, yeah. We only had to do the whole thing. And this is Commander Worsley Gibson again. He's that miserable bugger from HMS Albion. But he's got good reason to be miserable. What does he say? Every book on war ever written always states the fact that politicians interfering with commanders in the field always lead to disaster. But still they think they are born strategists and know-alls and do it again and again. Who do you think he's talking about in particular? Well, he's, it's got to be Churchill, wasn't it? Yeah, it's not only Churchill. I, I must have... No, know, no, the whole war cabinet... <clears throat> the whole cabinet, war cabinet has blame. Kitchener has blame. But Churchill has the most blame. Now, uh, so what's happened? Let's an- analyse what's happened. Uh, uh, three of the 16 Allied capital ships, battleships, pre-dreadnoughts, the rest of it, uh, battlecruisers, were sunk. Three more were so severely damaged that they had to go to uh, dockyards uh, so that makes 6 out of 16 that is more than a third of the available force have been sunk uh, <clears throat> now what had they achieved for these losses now you're going to be Lieutenant Geoffrey Ryland of HMS Ark Royal and you're a cynical bad tempered bugger from the sound of it but I think you sum it up beautifully this is Lieutenant Geoffrey Ryland HMS Ark Royal there's considerable uncertainty, though, as to how much damage the fort suffered. It is true one cannot make omelettes without breaking eggs, but it is bad if the eggs are broken and the omelette is not made. The question is, have we done three ships worth of damage to the forts? And the answer is no. Yes, they've damaged them a bit, but they haven't damaged them. By the way, another thought has just come to my mind. How do you normally make an omelette? I say, Janet, can I have an omelette? You're a sexist. You're a sexist pig. Right. Now, the thing is that they hadn't done much damage. They hadn't cleared the minefields. They hadn't taken out the the, uh, torpedo tubes. They hadn't uh, taken out the uh, batteries, the minefield batteries. They hadn't taken out the howitzers. What had they done? And I think, isn't there a phrase, bugger all? There's another one that's F all. Uh, but they'd, done, they'd not really done anything, had they? But they were also not fully aware of the situation they were facing. They had no idea about the mines that the Nusret had laid. Um, and that basically done for them. It, it wasn't the mines across the straits. It was it was those mines. But they hadn't got to them. They would have done for them if they'd got to them, I think. The point is they haven't really done anything. Now, Churchillian fans... I've always tried to cast it as a stunning success. Uh, well, it was a stunning success for the Turks, but they've tried to recast it as a near-run thing. Uh, that oh, if only, if only they'd tried again next day, they'd have been successful. Oh, and the, and the Turks were running low on ammunition. Oh, they've got nothing, and their forts are beaten into to, to submission. Now, the thing is, um, 
um, there's two things to it. One, I thought you just said that you, the irresistible ocean were being there was a torrent of fire on them, yeah. so they'd not been knocked out. Uh, had they run out of shells? Go on, have they run out of shells? No, the Turks had enough shells to to deal with uh, the ships they were facing, and. Who was more likely to run out of shells, a land-based uh, force or a seaborne force? Well, yes, that's a great point. Uh, it, it, they, you see, the thing is, they may not have had all the modern shells they wanted. They didn't have all the shells they wanted, the Turks, but they had enough to deal with a renewed attack. And they get more coming up quicker, the point you made, than the British could get. They have, Well, where would they come from? Malta or Alexandria, I presume. I've no idea. But it, 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 the forts are battered. They are battered. But what, what is the essence of them? They're still standing, aren't they? Um, the minefield is still there. The howitzers are still there. The torpedo tubes are still there. The garbon. Uh, she'd been damaged, I think, but she, there was a threat of the Garban and the rest of the Turkish fleet. Uh, what had happened to the inflexible that was meant to deal with the Garban? It was well, a, that's that run aground. Yeah. It was out of action. It couldn't have dealt with the Garban even if it had been successful. So I think. Do you think there was any hope for the great naval attack of the nineteenth of March that uh, people like Churchill and Keyes would have launched? No. None no. at all. Uh, there's very slim chance, and I, I would edge towards none at all, largely because of what happened previously. Had there not been any warning in November, then I think maybe there would have been a chance of success. But you'd have had to have taken the ground. And we keep mention, mentioning Asia. You know, this, this isn't an island. This isn't in, in isolation. So even if you had forced the Straits, were the Turks going to give up? No. Yeah, there's a boat up of um, Constantinople. Let's give out or Istanbul, as they would say. Of course not. But in some ways, a, a cynic would point out that this dreadful failure is probably the best chance we ever had of success, because the land operations had almost no chance of success uh, from start to finish. Uh, so they're all round. This is the beginning of a disaster, isn't it? It's a disastrous start to a disastrous campaign. Uh, yeah. So- I don't think we could say any more, really. Uh, if you'd like to read more about it, uh, I've, I've written a book, Gallipoli, which uh, you might like. Um, What's it about? It's about Gallipoli, Gary. And, oh. <laughs> and it's uh, on profile. Uh, it's quite a lot. And uh, with Nigel Steele, I wrote Defeat at Gallipoli, which is a different book. And uh, and uh, you might w- want to learn more. Uh, it's It's a terrible, terrible waste of lives and another terrible failure. Uh, so there we go. Thank you very much for joining me, Gary. Or perhaps now, these days, under new management, thank you for allowing me to join you. And when you say terrible failure, do you mean the podcast? <laughs> I'll leave that to the listeners. We've had some feedback, feedback that does rather indicate some feedback. That. Feedback's much different to I'd the feedback. I quite fancy a bit of feedback. <laughs> On that high note. Cheers, Pete. Cheers, Gary. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. 
You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?